Welcome back, everyone, and thank you for joining us for today's podcast from Dublin First Baptist Church in Dublin, North Carolina. We hope you'll be encouraged today as you listen to our message. For more information, please visit our website at www.dublinfbc.org. That's www.dublinfbc.org. Now let's join the congregation of Dublin First Baptist as we listen to the preaching of God's Word. Will you turn back to Luke uh, with me? I'm sorry, Acts. Luke wrote Acts. <laughs> turn with me to Acts chapter uh, 4 this morning. And also thank you choir for that song. That was incredible. And I sat back there with Ray for the last two Sunday nights and I knew good and well when that song ended it didn't end. But I started clapping an amen in anyway because because it like it, it connects you the words I'm like I, I wanted to clap an amen after the first verse and same with Grace's song so um, Acts four and last week we studied Peter's second sermon uh, the one he gave uh, out the gospel to the crowd who had gathered at the temple uh, and they had witnessed uh, them heal the lame man they healed that lame man through the Holy Spirit of Jesus Christ. And uh, Peter and John, they are just seizing opportunity after opportunity to tell people about the salvation that's through faith in Christ. And they get another opportunity uh, in our passage this morning. It's an interesting one because it's an opportunity that's provided through resistance uh, to our mission, that resistance rising. How should we respond? What should we do when we're met with obstacles or resistance to our mission, to, to you and I giving out the gospel of Jesus Christ. Well, let's see what God tells us here as we study this passage verse by verse. Before we do that, let's go to the Lord in prayer once more. Father, we ask your Holy Spirit, who's present here in the life of every single person who's trusted in Jesus as their Savior, who's present here among us as we've gathered to worship, and if there's one who hasn't trusted in Christ as Savior, he's here calling them. Uh, to put their faith and trust in Christ. We ask that that Holy Spirit would, would come and illuminate the truth of your word to us. God, I pray that you'd remove any distractions, uh, our cares, any anxieties we might have about life right now. And just for this little bit, we would devote our entire heart and mind, every part of us, to your word. And then, Lord, I pray that what we learn here and the truths that you give us that your Holy Spirit would have free and unobstructed reign and uh, activity in our lives, that we might respond to the truth that you give us in this passage. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. So we see resistance rising to the mission of Jesus' followers in this confrontation. There's a confrontation here, and let's look at the role beginning in verse 1. There's kind of a roll call here of who confronted Peter and John. It says that as they continued, verse 1, as they continued to preach the message of Jesus transforming this man's life and preach the salvation that's only found in Jesus Christ, it says in verse 1 that the priests and the captain of the temple, the temple guard, and the Sadducees came upon them. Now, if you'll drop down to verses 5 and 6, we get an additional roll call of who confronted Peter and John for their preaching. In verse 5 and 6, it says, rulers, elders, scribes, Annas, the high priest, and Caiaphas. And then two fellows we don't know much about, but who are 
important officials because of their inclusion here in this list, John and Alexander, and then it closes verse 6 by saying, as many as were kindred of the high priest. And, and so the point here is this is quite an assembly of extremely powerful people who are confronting Peter and John and confronting the mission Jesus gave his followers of being witnesses for him. Resistance is rising here for, for the first time against their sharing of the gospel and making disciples. And it's honestly a little funny because of this extreme differences in, in all these characters. I mean, here are two former fishermen, Peter and John. I mean, simple country folk from Galilee, and their mission, uh, their message is being met with resistance from the full force of every powerful individual in that culture and in that society. But if we think about it, that's what happened to Jesus just a few months earlier. Jesus says in Luke twenty-two fifty-two, that at his arrest in the Garden of Gethsemane, um, he says this to the chief priests <laughs> and to the captains of the temple and to the elders who had come to arrest Jesus there. He says, am I leading a rebellion that you have come to me with swords and clubs? Jesus says, every day I was with you in the temple courts and you did not lay a hand on me. But this is your hour that darkness may reign. And I mention that because God gives us this specific roll call here in Acts 4. The very same individuals who arrested and tried and even killed Jesus are now rising in resistance to the continuing work of Jesus Christ by his Holy Spirit through his followers here. Let's look at a description of that resistance at the end of verse 1. It says these individuals came upon them. Now, I, I love the King James, but that translation, at least in our day right now, is, I think, a little weak. Some newer English translations say confronted, and the Greek word is ephistemi, which is translated elsewhere in God's word as attacking or confronting. This roll call of powerful people didn't just come upon them to listen to them and hear their message. They came to stop them. And verse 3 says that they laid hands on them. And they put them in hold. They put them in prison until the next day, for it was now eventide. And so Peter and John are, are confronted, arrested, and they're imprisoned for doing what Jesus told them to do, for sharing the gospel. They're arrested and imprisoned by the same people that arrested tried and killed their master. There was no mention here in this passage that Peter and John were scared. In fact, it says they were bold. They were courageous. Um, but being courageous doesn't mean that you're not scared. It just means that you do the right thing anyway in spite of that. I would believe that they did have some fear. I know it sounds frightening to me. I've met resistance before in sharing the gospel. I've never been arrested or imprisoned for it. But I have experienced resistance, and it was even frightening a time or two when I was out soul winning. Steve, have you ever experienced that resistance? That might be a little frightening. And uh, what happened here? Would the gospel be shut down? Would this rapidly growing uh, church come to a halt? Would people no longer be getting saved and following Jesus? Well, look at verse 4. The historical record here and throughout the rest of the book of Acts says that just the opposite happened. It says, Howbeit many of them which heard the word believed, and the number of the men was about 5,000. Many of these people who heard what Peter and John preached in chapter 3 in Peter's second gospel sermon, they believed. And whether this is an additional 5,000 to the 3,000 at Pentecost or it's just in the 2,000, 
the bottom line is the church is rapidly growing despite this resistance, despite this persecution. And Acts 4.4 shows us that the intimidation and the imprisonment was ineffective. The resistance rising from these enemies of the gospel actually resulted in reproduction in the church. This kind of resistance, arrest, imprisonment to the gospel, it may sound frightening, but can I tell you what is much, so much scarier to me? In our culture, Christians have rarely, if ever, faced persecution of this level or greater, but, but here, uh, resistance has risen against the gospel and against our mission and against us participating in it and accomplishing it. That resistance is far more insidious. It, it's way more dangerous uh, secretly. Because Satan hasn't attacked us with intimidation or, or imprisonment. He's instead attacked us with worldliness and selfishness and a love of status, a love of being accepted, not wanting to offend anyone. He's attacked us with pride and, and a love for possessions. In fact, we've, we've been so blessed. We have an endless parade of amusements, even some degree of opulence in our lives. And these are the forms of resistance that threaten to keep you and I off mission. Now let's look at what's behind the confrontation. There was a cause here. We see that, the first one in verse 2, uh, their competence. Why did all these powerful people rise in resistance to what Peter and John were doing? Why did they confront them for teaching others about Jesus? Well, the beginning of verse 2 says that these enemies of the gospel, they were grieved that they, Peter and John, taught the people. They viewed Peter and John as incompetent. I mean, here was Annas, the former high priest, and his son-in-law Caiaphas, the current high priest. Here's the captain of the temple guard, the Sadducees, and we're going to find out later the, the Sanhedrin, basically the 71-member uh, Supreme Court in that culture. And they're grieved because these two former fishermen with absolutely no training in their rabbinic schools, they're teaching the people. And these same leaders had the same problem with Jesus. He was questioned repeatedly with the same question that Peter and John are interrogated with in verse 7. By what power, by what authority, or by what name have you done this? And verse 2 says they were grieved that they taught the people. But that's just a promise of God for us in the new covenant. That's ours through Jesus Christ. In Jeremiah 31, 33 and 34, it says this, But this shall be the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, saith the Lord. I will put my law in their inward parts, and I will write it in their hearts. I will be their God, and they shall be my people, and they shall teach no more every man his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them unto the greatest of them, saith the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and I'll remember their sin no more. So this is the promise of the new covenant, that, that when you and I trust in Jesus Christ as Savior, we become uh, recipients of the blessings of that new covenant. And it's such an important blessing of the new covenant in Christ that for Baptists like us, it's one of our Baptist distinctives. Right? We'll make, a, we'll make a, a cross stick out of that to kind of differentiate what, what we believe uh, from maybe other Christians like Methodists or Presbyterians. Um, but this uh, P here in Baptist, B-A-P-T-I-S-T, that P is, uh, stands for the priesthood of the believer. That, that God gifts every one of us who have come to Jesus Christ for salvation, that God gifts us all with an understanding of his word through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, and that we no longer need a high priest like Annas 
or Caiaphas. We don't need anyone else uh, to be a go-between between us and God. And we still need teachers. I'm not trying to work myself out of a job here. We still need teachers. God has gifted many through his Holy Spirit with that spiritual gift. The New Testament talks about it. And praise the Lord, this church is just filled with them. In the next hour, there's going to be a multitude of teachers who are going to encourage you and build your faith through God's word. But these enemies of the gospel here who, who were rising in resistance to Peter and John and to their mission and to their message, they were not believers in the new covenant. They were not recipients of the new covenant. They hadn't received Jesus as their savior. And they were grieved because these incompetent, in their eyes, men were teaching. We're going to get there in a minute, but that's literally what verse 13, what they call Peter and John. They say they're unlearned and ignorant men. In the Greek, unlearned is agramatoi. It means unschooled. And uh, it's a little harsher uh, for ignorant. Greek there is idiotes. They're amateurs. That's where we get our English word for idiots. That's what they called Peter and John here. And the cause of the confrontation by these leaders against Peter and John wasn't just about their competence or lack thereof. It was also about their content. If you look at the end of verse 2, I don't know if they would have had any beef with them if they had been teaching anything else. But verse 2 tells us the content of their message. They preached through Jesus the resurrection of the dead. They were preaching the gospel. And we studied the content of their message last week in chapter 3. They're going to preach it again here in verses 8 through 13. They'll continue to preach the gospel for the rest of their lives. That God's son, Jesus Christ, God came to us. He lived among us a perfect life we cannot and did not live. And then he died for us. He died for our sins in our place. They preach that essential hope-filled component of the gospel. Jesus didn't stay dead. No, he rose from the grave, and they preach that by faith in who Jesus is and what he's done for us, we can be forgiven of our sins by God, and we can receive new life in Christ right here, right now, and eternal life with him in heaven one day. Isn't that a wonderful message? Yeah. And that's what got them arrested. <laughs> so it got them in prison overnight. And they were brought into court the next day, faithfulness and obeying Christ's command to share the gospel. Now let's look at the consequence. For Peter and John, the consequence is really just another opportunity to share the gospel. In verses 8 through 13, they're brought before the Sanhedrin. And Peter and John are asked, by what power, by what authority, they've healed this lame man. By what power and authority are you preaching and teaching about Jesus? And verse 8 records Peter, he's filled with the Holy Ghost once again for what he's about to say. And he kind of turns the tables on his attackers, his accusers in verse 9. He says, are we being examined? Are we being really, we're being tried in court for doing a good deed? And then Peter lets the gospel go in full force. He seizes this opportunity in verses 10 to 13 to tell these enemies of Christ who had just killed Jesus Christ. He tells them about the salvation that's found only in Christ. Do they need to hear it? Yeah, they do. In verse 11, Peter takes them straight to God's word. You know, if truth is going to be on trial, there's no better place to take them than truth. And Peter connects the prophetic promise that God gives us in Psalm 118.22. He connects it with Jesus. He's the cornerstone, but he was set at naught. He was despised. He was rejected by you builders. 
Peter uses the very same Old Testament text that Jesus himself used when he was confronting the people of Jerusalem over their rejection of him as their Savior in Luke 20, 17. And Peter says here, but God, you rejected him, you despised this cornerstone, but God has made him the head of the corner. God has exalted him. You killed him, but Jesus rose from the grave. He's ascended into heaven, and he's exalted at God's right hand, and he'll be there till he returns. And then the very necessary, but also very powerful, exclusive, I'm going to have a hard time with that word. I knew I was. Exclusivicity <laughs> of the gospel that Jesus commanded us to share is laid out so clearly by Peter in verse 12. If you wonder what that word means that I murdered there, just look at verse 12. The gospel is exclusive. What does he say there in verse 12? Neither is there salvation in any other. There is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Just Jesus. He's the way. Not one way. He's the way. He's the truth. Not one of many truths. Your truth, my truth. No, he's the truth. <laughs> and he's the life. Wow. What an opportunity they had here. That, that night spent in prison didn't cause Peter and John to shrink back and get together and say, <laughs> what are we going to say tomorrow? You <laughs> think we need to tone it down a little bit? I mean, these are the same people that killed Jesus. No, they didn't do that. They didn't try to save their skin. They preached the clear, life-transforming gospel of Jesus Christ before all of these men who had risen in resistance to it. Verse 13 says that the Sanhedrin here, they were taken back a bit when they saw the boldness of Peter and John. Boldness. You know, and as Grace was singing, how can you be bold like that when you're just coming out of prison and you're standing and your life might be at stake? I mean, they killed the one that you served. They killed your master. How can you be that bold? Well, when you have Jesus, you have everything. They can't take anything from you because you have him. He's more than everything. You've got everything when you have. That's where you get this boldness. It says they were, they were shocked. That they marveled because these were unlearned and ignorant men in verse 13. The same word is, is used as a description of the people's response to Jesus. They marveled at the boldness of Peter and John, just as people marveled at the teaching and the miracles of Jesus. And I love that last part of verse 13, because it says that they took knowledge of them that they had been with Jesus. Man, I hope that is the testimony or the description of every person who knows you and I. I hope that that is our testimony, that when people hear what we say and when people see what you and I do, and when they recognize how we think, that it is so clear to them that we have been with Jesus. Talk about how Jesus transforms the life of those who come to him in faith for salvation. We've seen the transformation in this layman's life. But look at Peter. I mean, two months or so earlier, Peter denied three times that he had ever been with Christ. And here, the, the, his boldness and his message it gives evidence to what he once denied, that he had been with Jesus. His life has been transformed by Christ. Look at the obstacle. That's another consequence. It wasn't just an opportunity to share the gospel. This is the first resistance to the church's mission that it's met. It's going to get a lot harder as we go through the book of Acts. Um, these enemies of the gospel, they've got to do something. Verse 14 says that they took 
uh, they, they look at the man uh, who is lame. I mean, he's still right there. He's lame his entire life. His life has been totally transformed by his faith in Christ. There's no arguing that. There's no dismissing that. It'd be impossible. Truth is on trial here, and truth is winning. Um, in verses 15 to 17, they send Peter and John outside so that they can discuss what they're going to do, come up with a, a plan. Uh, to put down this Jesus business. They can't argue. They cannot dismiss what is clearly evident. This man has been healed. His life's been transformed. They can't. They, they don't even try to argue about Christ's resurrection, what Peter's repeatedly said here. I, I mean, that would be the easiest way to put down this Jesus stuff, this whole Christianity thing. But they can't disapprove that. They, can, they can't dismiss that either. Truth is on trial, and truth wins. But their plan is laid out in verses 17 and 21. It says, but that this spreads no further, we're going to threaten them. Straightly threaten in verse 17. In the Greek, it's literally, we're going to threaten a threat, meaning severely. We're going to severely threaten them. That's serious. Again, these are the same, very same people that came through on their threats to Christ. These men had the position. They had the power to come through on their threats. They can make life very difficult for Peter and John. They can make life non-existent for Peter and John. And verse 18 says that they bring Peter and John back in, and they command them, no more talking about Jesus. No more teaching about him. What's the bold response of Peter and John? Look at verses 19 and 20. Peter and John say, we can't do that. I mean, respectfully. We have to obey God if you tell us to do something that would result in us disobeying God. We cannot but speak of the things which we've seen and heard. It's our mission. It's our life now. I mean, literally, we have life in this, and we want others to have life in this as well. That's a consequence to the gospel, to the gospel having resistance. It continues to go out. Verses 21 and 22, they wrap up this passage. Peter and John are threatened again. Ultimately, they're let go. These enemies of the gospel, they had no choice. There was a mass of people there, a whole crowd, right? And um, they had witnessed this lame man's life being transformed. They had heard, they had responded to the gospel, at least 5,000 had. And verse 21 says that all men glorified God for what God had done. These religious leaders on this resistance roll call we looked at earlier, they didn't have any choice. It says they, they feared the response of the people if they did anything else. Boy, isn't that ironic? Here you got the most powerful people in their culture, and they feared the people. Well, you got Peter and John with Holy Spirit infused boldness, and they fear no man. They fear no man. One more thing before we close. So how did Luke the human author that God inspired to write the book of Acts to us. How did Luke know what went on in verses 15 and 16? Let me read those again for you. It says, uh, but when they had commanded them to go outside, they sent Peter and John outside, they conferred among themselves, saying, what shall we do to these men? For that indeed a, a notable miracle has been done by them. It's manifest to all of them that dwell in Jerusalem. We cannot deny it. And you know what happened after that. They come up with their threatening. How did Luke know what went on? in there. And I asked Krista that in the car yesterday, and she came up with a good answer. Well, God told Luke, because God inspired him to write every word here. And she's not wrong. She's not. That's truth. Um, 
But can I give you one possibility at least? I think it's a possibility. We're going to be introduced to a fella at the end of chapter 7, Saul of Tarsus. He would have been a member of the Sanhedrin mentioned in this passage. In Acts chapter 21, Paul talks about casting his vote as a member of that council. Um, He's going to be converted to Christianity. He's going to receive Jesus as a Savior in Acts chapter 9, and he's going to receive him in a powerful and amazing conversion experience. But I wonder if Saul, who became Paul, first heard the gospel right here. That was a seed planted that God brought to fruition a couple chapters later, all because Peter and John did not back down. They did not let fear keep them from communicating the gospel. Did Saul, who would become the Apostle Paul, I mean the greatest missionary that the Bible ever records to spread the gospel, did he first witness gospel life transformation and hear the gospel message in the bold preaching of Peter and John? Is it possible that Paul told Luke, about what was said in this closed-door Sanhedrin Supreme Court meeting. I'd say probably, especially with Acts 26.10. And here's why that's important. All right, um, Peter and John and you and I, as followers of Jesus, as those who received him as Savior, we are not responsible for saving anyone. And I thank God for that, because I can't and you can't. <laughs> we are just commanded to be faithful to share the gospel. When Peter first did it at Pentecost, 3,000 got saved. And Peter did it here in chapter 3, verse 4 of chapter 4. Here it says that 5,000 had trusted Christ as Savior. What about when Peter and John shared the gospel here before the Sanhedrin? How many got saved? Hmm, big fat zero from what's described here, at least right here, right now. The response was hardly the same. There was no full altars. There's no thousands saved. Honestly, they just got more threats to stop. But you know what God does? God will take a gospel seed and he will use his Holy Spirit to bring people to salvation in his time. In his time. We are not responsible for souls saved. We are responsible for the gospel shared. That's our role. That's our part. But just think. Think of how many did actually eventually respond to the gospel as a result of Peter sharing it right here and Paul receiving it later and Paul preaching it later and Paul spreading it later. So here's the application. Christian, that coworker that just grates on your nerves, they mock your faith, they live like a godless pagan, just be faithful to boldly, lovingly share the gospel with them. Sunday school teacher, Awana leader, you might have a little rascal in your class. And you wonder if they ever hear a single word of what you're teaching, just be faithful to share the gospel. Let God do what he has promised to do with his word. That currently godless coworker, they might be the next apostle Paul in God's plan. That little rascal in Awana, he might be the next Billy Graham. If you've never trusted in Christ as your savior, the gospel has been laid out here again as Lord willing, it is every Sunday, but especially when we're going through the book of Acts. If you've never received him as Savior, I I invite you right now to do it. We're going to have a time of invitation or response, but don't wait for that. Even now, call out to God, confess your sins, tell him you trust in the work of Jesus Christ, what he did for you to save you from your sins. Receive Christ as your Savior now. But Christians, since Acts 1-8, we have seen that what Jesus promised, it it came true. 
Christians will have the power of the Holy Spirit. We've seen that what Jesus commanded, his followers did. They were witnesses of him to the world around them. And that promise, that mission given, it is for every single one of us here today. We who have trusted in Christ as our Savior, we are to carry, we're to communicate that message here, there, and everywhere. And we're to do it with boldness, with courage, in spite of fear or any threats. Um, but, but how you think, by what you say, by how you live, would it be the conclusion of everyone around you that you have been with Jesus? It sure gives power and credibility to any gospel you share. Will you commit this morning to, to boldly share the gospel in spite of any possible threats or obstacles, any resistance that might rise? If you will, and if you do, God has promised to harvest those seeds that you plant. He'll do it in his time. We're called to just be faithful in sowing those seeds. He'll do the harvest. So Dublin First Baptist, in, in the week ahead, my encouragement is the commandment of Jesus Christ, his great commission. As you are going, make disciples. That's the great commission Jesus gave us. That's our mission as a church together. I'd ask you right now, as we have a time of response, I, would you ask God to identify just one, maybe two, people in your life that you can share the gospel with? Ask him for the opportunity. He's like, well, I don't know how I'll meet that. They live far away. or No, ask him to give you that opportunity. Because he wants you to do that, I promise you he will. He'll give you that opportunity in his time. And if you'll be faithful, he'll bring that harvest in his time. Ask him to, to give you. And then ask him to give you the strength. The Holy Spirit infused boldness like Peter and John had here. Commit to pray for them in this time of response. As Tommy comes, um, however God's used his Holy Spirit to drive his word into your hearts, to call you to respond, Today, I just ask that you'd obey. Let's all stand.